Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hello, everybody. We are ready to get started. And uh, just just need another couple of seconds before we start our Morin of Uchim Shir for today. Still getting accustomed to the uh, to the new WebEx system that uh, Web Yeshiva is using. So just give us another moment, please. Okay. Good uh, good morning or good afternoon, as the case may be. Um, this is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you from Toronto, Ontario, at Beth Avram Yosef. Uh, congregation uh, here in Toronto, and we are studying Maimonides' classic philosophical work, Morena Vuchim. We are in the first section of the Morena Vuchim. We are going to be hopefully covering two chapters today, which is quite unusual for this uh, for this class. We are hopefully going to be covering chapters 55 and 56 of the first section. Um, those of you who have enrolled in the webyeshiva.org course uh, already have uh, accessible to you the downloadable PDF. If you're watching this on Facebook Live, you can just open up a new tab in your browser, go to the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, and the PDF is there available for you to download. And it also appears here on the screen uh, for you as well. Um, okay. So now, um, uh, the title that we're going to be discussing today is uh, this Distancing Corporeality Being Affected Deficiency and Similitude from God, and I'm going to explain. We are using the Pines edition, and we are on page 128, which is where chapter 55 begins. The Rambam is in the midst of, uh, from here, Pretty much until the end of the first section is going to is discussing his negative theology of God, which is essentially explaining to us that no matter what kind of terminology we will find in Tanakh or which we ourselves will attempt to ascribe to God, our language will be insufficient to properly uh, ascribe anything to God other than the fact that he is God and he is unitary and unique. And we're continuing along in that discussion. Here in chapter 55, the Rambam is using very philosophical terminology, and it's clear that he, he is utilizing both Platonic and Aristotelian uh, philosophical nomenclature and logic in order to demonstrate that God has no essential attributes. This is what we've been discussing all the time. In our previous chapter, if you recall, we were told that the entire encounter that Moses had with God after the sin of the golden calf was where God said, um, I will only allow you to see my back, but you will not be able to see my face, is a reference to the fact that God says it is impossible for the human being to comprehend God essentially. 
to understand God as he truly is. You will be able to see the way I interact with this world, my actions, that's that's um, that's dirachecha. That's what Moshe called God your ways. My actions is the way God says is dirachecha is what the, that word means. But to actually see my glory, to see my essential makeup, God says, that's not possible for any human being to properly comprehend. And therefore, what the Rambam translates that into is that anyone who tries to ascribe essential attributes to God is making an error, is making a mistake. Specifically in chapter 55, the Rambam is now discussing four specific attributes which must be distanced to God for any philosopher worth his salt. The first one is something that he's been talking about a lot ever since the beginning of Morena Vichim, which is corporeality. And we'll start the text. We're not going to go through the entire text, Kiseider, um, a word for word, because I think you'll find that a lot of it is overly technical for our purposes as we're studying it today. It has already been said before, and here we are again on page 128 in the Khan's edition. It has already been said before in a number of passages of his treaties that anything that entails corporeality ought of necessity to be negated in reference to him. And uh, as the Rambam writes in Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, the laws of the foundational ideas of the Torah, which is the, the, how the Rambam opens up his Mishneh Torah, his work on Jewish law, that uh, the Rambam writes in chapter 1, uh, Halacha 11, that, uh, and I have it here on the screen for you, source number 1. The Kevan Shanit Barer She'eno Guf Once we have established that God is completely non-corporeal, a number of things stem from God's non-corporeality. That, that, that is to say that God has no physical makeup whatsoever. And one of the most important things that the Rambam writes about God's non-corporeality or what stems from that is what I have bold and underlined is the no that God is completely unchangeable, immutable, that there is nothing that can cause a change in God. And this is something that the Rambam is emphasizing here in chapter uh, 55. So the second thing that the Rambam writes, once I've established that God does not have corporeality, he writes, and that all affections likewise should be negated in reference to him. What he means by affection, the word affection in English today means having a, an emotional feeling towards someone. If I have affection towards you, it means I like you or I love you. But the word affection, as it's used in the philosophical sense, means that I can affect you that I, uh, you are capable of being affected. So to say that God has affections, it means that God is capable of being affected by something that is external to God. And that is philosophically inappropriate to say about God. And he says, for all affections entail change. Once we establish that God is not physical, he's not subject to change. And moreover, the agent who affects those affections is undoubtedly not identical with him who was acted upon or affected. Accordingly, if he may be he exalted or subject to affection in any respect, whatever, someone other than he would act upon him and affect change in him. So the Rambam writes that that's, in, in essence, a very inappropriate thing to say about God, that something that is outside of God has power 
to in some way affect God. And this is a, a very, very strong idea that the Rambam is going to come back to and is going to emphasize a number of times, that God is completely immovable. He is the mover, but he is the unmoved mover, as Aristotle liked to talk about, uh, being, prime being, right? But, um, and the Rambam subscribes to that. There is nothing that can change or affect God in any way. Now, I, I want us to dwell upon this for just a moment, because at face value, this seems to fly in the face of the fact that God does seem to be subject to affection. If I could just ask everyone to kindly mute themselves, if you're joining us on this WebEx call at uh, webyeshiva.org, please, uh, please just mute yourself. Thank you very much. So just getting back to this issue, we know that God is subject to being affected because we talk about it all the time in Tanakh, that people pray or appeal to God and God responds to that. Uh, Avraham appealed to God. God responds to Avraham. God seems to be affected by Avraham through Avraham's prayers and through Avraham's entreaties. Moshe prays and entreaties God after the sin of the golden calf. And God, in turn, forgives the Jewish people. We find that prayer is a way of affecting God and causing God to go from his seat of justice to his seat of mercy, to use the language of the sages. So how do we reconcile that with the statement that the Rambam is making over here, that God is completely unaffectable? This is something that Rav Kafech points out to us, um, and he quotes a Gemara for us that is based upon a Pasuk in Parshat Toldot, source number two. That Isaac turned in prayer towards God uh, in regards to his wife, for she was barren. And God responded to Yitzchak, and Rivka became pregnant. And the word Vayetar or Vayeater is a, a very unusual verb. So it, this leads the Talmud in Tractate of Amot to say, He asked the question. The word atar means a pitchfork or some kind of shoveling instrument that you use to transport grain and to overturn grain or, or, or wheat or sheaves of wheat. Why is it that the prayers of the righteous are like a pitchfork? It teaches us that just like a pitchfork, pitchfork or a shovel can overturn grain and turn it from one place to another, so too the prayer of a righteous person can convert all of God's attributes and change God's attribute of, of wrath and anger into an attribute of mercy. So whereas before Rivka was barren, because God had determined that Rivka should not have children, Isaac was able to turn over the decree through his prayers and affect God. So how can we say that God is not affectable? The Talmud also says, um, this is from Tractate Rachot, source number four. 
In the blessings that Bilam, the Gentile prophet, gives to the Jewish people, he gives a very flowery, poetic blessing to the Jewish people, but he uses the words brooks or rivers in the same context as tents. Why is it that brooks and tents are connected in the blessing to the Jewish people? This is to teach you that just like a brook can act as a mikvah for ablution purposes to trans, uh, transform a person from impurity to purity, so to the tents of prayer, the synagogues can convert a person from being guilty to being innocent to, to, trans, uh, to transform a person from deserving punishment to deserving reward. And again, the question is, how do we affect God? There are a number, there's a huge, there are mountains upon mountains of commentary on this apparent contradiction, that God is the ultimate immovable mover, that God himself cannot be affected or changed. But on the other hand, one of the cornerstones of our faith have the ability to transform God's decrees um, uh, through prayer and through good deeds and so forth. So how do we reconcile this? There's a number of discussions about this in so many different texts. I just chose as one example the, the work Iye Hayam. And in his discussion, he says that the word tefillah, for example, prayer, when we turn that into a verb, we say lehit palel, to pray, but it's a reflexive verb which means tefillah is something that I do to myself, not that I do to transform God. And this seems to be the conventional wisdom on how we reconcile the effects of prayer to the unchangeable God. And he writes like this. Um, he says, uh, I'm just moving, I'm just skipping because uh, of time constraints in source number five. <laughs> He says the, the, the function of prayer is not to change or affect he who hears our prayers, and to change God from one aspect to another. He says that God is too exalted, the way that he's describing him now is in the Maimonidean fashion. God is too elevated and transcendent to be subject to change based on our prayers. But the way that it works is, is the person who is, who is putting forth the prayer is converting himself or herself into a different person. I am, when I pray, I transform myself from someone who is unworthy to someone who is worthy. And as Jacob said, when he woke up from the dream of the ladder, he said, this is an awesome place. Prayer that I can do in this place has an awesome transformative effect. Meaning that the synagogue where we go to pray is a place of ultimate transformation of the individual. Not the transformation of God, but the transformation of the individual. 
So essentially, when a person prays, even when Moses prays on behalf of the entire Jewish people, he is transforming himself and the entire Jewish people to be worthy of forgiveness, not that God is in any way being transformed. God, as Maimonides describes him, based on the earlier philosophers, is that God is almost like a transmitter of energy. And depending upon the recipient of that energy will determine what kind of energy that recipient receives. We transform ourselves, we do not change God. So that's the second important principle. The third important principle we continue in the text, likewise all privation out of necessity to be negated in reference to him. That it's impossible to say that God is capable of any kind of deficiency, even for a temporary period of time. So therefore to say that God is upset or God is angry would imply some deficiency and that God needs to be calmed down or God's anger needs to be abated. And there's no such thing as God being potentially perfect. God is actually perfect 100% of the time. And we, we're going to skip now, and, and we skip down a few lines. One must likewise of necessity deny with reference to him as being similar to any existing thing. And this fourth idea that we cannot in any way uh, uh, um, ascribe to God similitude, where we would say that, is it possible to say that God is similar to anything? That's absolutely impossible. And that's actually going to be the subject of chapter 56, the very next chapter. But here the Rambam brings us proofs from Tanakh that many times the prophets talk about the impossibility of God being compared to anything else. As it says in Isaiah chapter 40, two verses, to whom will you liken me that I should be equal to them, says the ultimate holy one. Or earlier in verse 18, uh, to whom will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? Or, as it says in Yirmiya, There is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great with, mighty, with mightiness. This occurs frequently. The basis of the matter is that anything that leads one to one of these four kinds of attributions, namely corporeality, affection or change, God being God being affected, or that God is in something in actuality, that God is sorry, is not something in actuality, and therefore God is subject to deficiency and then later perfection, or to say that God has any similitude or any similarity to anything else, these are all grave mistakes that a person needs to remember that is that that these four things are impossible to ascribe to God. And then he points out that, and this is a this is an important paragraph uh, if you are a logician of the Middle Ages. The Rambam says, I would normally spend time if I was perhaps in a philosophical academy and my function was to use uh, syllogisms to be able to logically that these four things are impossible to ascribe to God, I would spend the time in explaining this to you. Someone who is well-trained in the philosophical sciences of logic and, uh, and demonstration is, is able to grasp these ideas using the, um, the, the techniques 
and the nomenclature of logical arguments. But he says, that's not what we're going to be doing now. But if you are able to grasp it using the logical arguments that I have mastered and that my students have mastered, not only is this something that you take on faith, but it's also something that can be proven actually that in an ironclad fashion that is not subject to any kind of refutation. And therefore, he, he says, and even if such a one knows these things, he does not know them through their demonstrations um, because he hasn't gone through the process. Accordingly, he does not know the particular corollaries following necessarily from these universal primary propositions. For this reason, he does not have at his disposal a demonstration of the existence of God of one of, or uh, one of the necessity of negating these kinds of attributions in reference to him. Meaning that if you haven't gone through the process, the philosophical training to be able to prove these things to yourself, you are at a disadvantage. Meaning I, we are at a disadvantage because we don't have the same philosophical training and logic in the way that uh, Aristotle taught it to his students and, so, and which was so in vogue during these middle ages when the Rambam was living. But the point is, is he wants to point out to us that this is not just fluff. This is actually something that is provable and demonstrable using philosophical argumentation. Having made this introduction, we go to the last paragraph. I will start upon another chapter in which I will make clear the absurdity of what is thought by those who believe that he has essential attributes. But that can be understood only by someone who already possesses knowledge of the art of logic and of the nature of being. Now, the next paragraph, which we're going to do today as well, chapter 56, is a continuation of this idea that, um, and it's very, very clear from chapter 56, that the Rambam is polemicizing against an unspoken party that is in vogue or an unspoken ideology that is in vogue during his time. And he's made reference to it before. He's actually going to tell us that the, the, the name of the group of people who actually believe this, he calls them the Mutakalimun, which we will not actually be discussing to any great extent today. In Hebrew, they are called the Medabrim. Uh, the, the word Mutikalimun is really uh, an Arabic word, meaning those who engage in speech, those who engage in kalam, which is a certain kind of philosophical dialectic uh, uh, way of arg logical argumentation. And these uh, Islamic philosophers uh, felt that they were able to demonstrate that you can ascribe certain of the things that we talked about up until now to God, namely these four. In, in particular, in chapter 56, the Rambam demonstrates or argues against these mutakalimun that you cannot ascribe any kind of similitude to God. We will look at, at verses from scripture and we will see that God is being compared in many, many different ways. And the Rambam has told us before, any kind of comparison that you see between God and human beings is completely uh, a borrowed speech. There is no way that God in any way can be compared to, uh, to human beings or human behavior. And that's how he starts off chapter 56. He says, know that likeness is a certain relation between two things. And that in cases where no relation can be supposed to exist between two things, no likeness between them can, can be represented to oneself in one's mind. 
if there's absolutely no similarity whatsoever between two things, then no, no representation of a similarity can be made. Similarly, in all cases in which there is no likeness between two things, there is no relation between them. So here's an example that he presents. He says, to, to try to compare something that is hot to something which possesses color is completely inappropriate because they have nothing in common. One is referred to in terms of its temperature, which is gauged by one set of sensory faculties, and the other one is gauged by its sense of color, which is gauged by vision, another type of faculty. Or that voice is like sweetness, something that you want, you want to take two different kinds of sensory experiences and compare them to, to each other. It's absolutely impossible to do that. This is manifestly clear, the Rambam says. Accordingly, in view of the fact that the relation between us and God uh, is non-existent, I mean the relation between him and that which is other than him, it follows necessarily that likenesses or similarities between him and us should also be considered non-existent. There's no way to actually make real comparisons between God and human beings. Um, and he continues along this using some very technical um, uh, uh, argumentation. But he also basically says an example of this is that there are certain things that can be compared. Anything that is within the realm of the physical world can be, one item can be compared to another if they are part of the physical three-dimensional universe. So he gives an example of this. He says, a mustard grain and the sphere of the fixed stars are alike in having three dimensions. These are two, when he refers to the sphere, he's referring to some kind of very um, elevated celestial body, which we're not going to get into now. But the point that he's making is, is that the tiniest little mustard seed and the very loftiest celestial body, you would think there's no comparison that can be made between these two things, but there is, because they are both three-dimensional. They both have features that allow them to have some kind of similarity drawn or some kind of commonality that is drawn between the two of them. Even though the latter is exceedingly big and the former exceedingly small, the notion of the existence of the dimensions in both of them is the same. Similarly, he says, wax melted in, sun, in the sun, which is melted through a very mild heat, and the element of fire, which has a much more intense kinds of heat, are alike in respect to heat. Even though this heat is very intense in the latter and very feeble in the former, the notion of the appearance of this quality in both of them is the same. So he says, it behooves those who believe that there are essential attributes that may be predicated to the creator. So referring to those, that school of ideology or philosophy that believes that God is capable of having essential attributes, which we do not subscribe to, namely that he is existent, living, possessing power, knowing and willing, all of these terms that are used in Tanakh, which the Rambam had taught us before, are only figurative and are only borrowed terms, but there are those who believe that they are actually, when we say that God is living and knowing, he is living and knowing in the same way that human beings are living and knowing, to understand that these notions are not ascribed to him and to us in the same sense. He says it's impossible to say that. According to what they think, the difference between these attributes and ours lies in the former being greater, more perfect, more permanent, or more durable than ours, so that his existence is more durable than our existence, 
His life more permanent than our life, his power greater than our power, his knowledge more perfect than our knowledge, and his will more universal than our will. And he says that that's impossible. To say in any way that God is comparable to humanity would diminish God in some way and put God in the same category as other existent beings. That takes away from God's unitary nature. God is absolutely unique. And therefore, to continue on page 131, about six or seven lines down, rather, these people think that the divine and human attributes are comprised in the same definition, however clear it is to all those who understand the meaning of being alike, that the term existent is predicated of him, may he be exalted, and of everything that is other than he in a purely equivocal sense, meaning that when we say that God exists, his existence is totally different from our existence. When we think about our existence, we really don't exist in relation to God's existence. And even the word existent, Rabbi is very big on language over here. The, the, the terminology that we use when we apply it to ourselves and to God equally, we mean two totally completely different things that have no similarity whatsoever. And the Rambam gets a little bit technical over here where he says that there is no way uh, like their meaning, uh, do not deem that they are used amphibolously, but rather they are used equivocally. Now, the difference between those two uh, is something that you can find in a work that the Rambam wrote called Sefer Milotahigayon. The Rambam wrote one of his lesser known writings is uh, a dictionary that the Rambam wrote to define philosophical terms. And I have this for you uh, on the screen in source number nine. Uh, in, he in Hebrew, it's called Hashem HaMesupak, where the Rambam describes that there are some kinds of words which have dual meanings, which means sometimes they mean one thing and sometimes they mean another thing. So, for example, he says the word Adam, um, the word Adam, he says, which means reference to a human being, could be said about a man named Reuven, who is capable of speech and, and is animated. But it could also be said about a person who is currently deceased. They are both Adam, and therefore that's an amphibolous term. It means that it can have two different meanings. I can refer to a human being both a living human being and a deceased human being. I could also use the term Adam to refer to a statue of a human being. I say, oh, that's, that, that looks like a human being. And I mean to say that statue has human form or appearance, but that's, you're, you're creating some similarity in that both a living human being, a deceased human being, and a statue of a human being all share certain common features of physical appearance. But when we use the terms alive, um, when we use the terms powerful, when we, we use when we use all of these other kinds of terms of, of knowledgeable, uh, when we use them in terms of God, it doesn't have any similarity whatsoever. It's not an amphibolous term, but rather it is uh, completely, completely removed um, and uh, not at all in any way connected to the way that we talk about. Uh, human beings. And he, that, he then goes on to say that this is not like the Mutakali moon, which we will discuss when we get to chapter 73 towards the end of the first section. And finally, therefore, we'll just read the last paragraph. Accordingly, this is a cogent demonstration 
that the meaning of the qualificative attributions ascribed to him and the meaning of the attributions known to us have nothing in common in any respect or in any mode. These attributions have in common only the name and nothing else. This being so, you must not believe that there exists in him notions superadded to his essence that are like the attributes that are superadded to our essence, because just because the name is common, just because I know something does not mean that when I say that God knows something, he knows it in the same way that I know something. For example, the conception is of immense sublimity according to those who know, keep it in memory and realize its true meaning so that it be ready to hand with a view to what we wish to make you understand, which basically means we're going further down this rabbit hole, take the information that I've given you, we're going to travel with this information as we go further in this discussion about the theology of God, trying to get as good of a grasp about God's essence as we can. And this is where we'll hold our discussion for today. Normally, we wouldn't run so quickly through the chapters of Moren Vuchim as we are now. But the reason we do so is because some of these chapters contain uh, more technical information that I find to be less, um, uh, less of interest and of less importance to go through word by word as we've done through with uh, some of the earlier chapters. We will probably do the same with chapters 57 and 58. And once we get to chapter 59, 60, and, and so on, we're going to slow down. We're going to decelerate a little bit and delve more into the chapters. Okay, thank you. That's it for today. And now I've got to figure out how we, how we finish all of this. So I'll stop the share screen. And we will turn off the early one meeting. Have a great day, everyone.